Father, that's why we just took the last breath that we took. That's why that electrical impulse that called our, caused our heart to beat a moment ago, that's why it happened. For the glory of it all. For us to live to your glory. Not cloistered away in some bubble, but doing our lives on this planet in the midst of our jobs, our, our play, our tears, our laughter. When we're alone, when we're with people. Would you teach us what that looks like a little bit more? Teach us what it looks like in terms of our individual relationships, in terms of our big church experience, our personal church experience, what it means in our, our culture. Thank you. Father, for this, this weekend and the anniversary that we commemorate of, of Dr. Martin Luther King and the way that we're learning as men and women to treat one another, not on the basis of color, but on the basis of our common dignity as men and women created in your image to your glory. I thank you, Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. So I'm just going to listen along with my friends. May I speak what needs to be said, no more, no less. And we want to listen together so that we can both experience and exalt your glory a bit more beautifully, and fulfillingly, and powerfully as a result of being here. It's a big request, but I make it in confidence because I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So good morning. Happy New Year. I, I know I'm late, but I haven't seen you. So thought I'd go ahead and tell you that. And I, I apologize, didn't get here to say Merry Christmas, but so I thought I'd, I'd bring a happy, happy New Year gift and to be able to, uh, do, do, you like, do you like jigsaw puzzles? Are, are you glad you sat on the front row? Okay. Tell me your name. Shannon. There you go. There's happy New Year gift for you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Absolutely. You know, actually, I, I do want to, no, I want you to have it. Because you like the jigsaw puzzles, right? Okay. Um, there you go. You can have that. So there we go. So, well, I like the photo. I like the photo on the, on the box top. Um, isn't that nice? Who tries putting a jigsaw puzzle together without the box top? No one. Why? Because it's too frustrating. There's no point of reference. We don't understand what each of these puzzles mean or how they fit together. Sting, the musician, he wrote a song a number of years ago called The Book of My Life. In it, he talks about his life as, being, as a story and he says, it reads like a puzzle a wandering maze, and though the pages are numbered, I can't see where they lead. No box top. We've all had those moments, and we all have them fairly often, in which we're thinking, what's up with this, or why this, or what's going on in this particular day? It's because we're engaging with individual puzzle pieces with no box top. We're in the midst of a series, just started a couple of weeks ago, Who I Am. 
who you are. Looking at what we believe, why we believe, and also to the in degree of living that out in our communities and in our culture and sharing that. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Joel talked about purpose and the importance of us uh, engaging with our purpose. Last week, he talked about the authority of Scripture. Remember that? It was seven days ago. Remember that? Okay. So today, what we're going to do is add those two together and talk about what happens when those two things come together. In other words, when I'm grappling with my purpose, but doing it under the light of Scripture. Uh, Joel talked about that the, the, the Word of God is not just some individual statements to give us more fuel for making arguments. God's Word is more than that. It's more than just a bunch of individual propositions. It is proposition. It's, it's truth statements. But it's truth statements together in a story. And until I get that larger story, those individual true statements don't make that much sense. But then when I put them in the context of the larger story, all of a sudden, I start to see something. You've been focusing on a passage of scripture the last couple of weeks. We looked even at it even last summer. You saw it on the screen a minute ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. So we're transformed into his likeness with ever increasing what? It's not that difficult, here we go. With ever increasing glory. I want you to remember that word. And the danger is we've heard that word over and over and we therefore ignore its importance. Looking at that verse, is that verse dynamic or static? It's not static, ever increasing glory. Something should be happening in our lives that glory, there's something increasing about this thing called glory. Have that verse in the background, in, in the back of your mind because that really is about this larger story. In the 14th century, a poet living in Florence, Italy, was named Alighieri. You might not know him by that name, but you might know him by his other name, Dante. Dante Alighieri wrote what for him was his life treatise. He called it commedia, comedy. In a tragic comedy sense in some ways, but it wasn't until about 200 years later that the adjective divine was added to it. And now we know it is one of the greatest pieces of Italian literature, the divine comedy. And in it, Dante places himself as the primary character, a young man in about 30, of about 35. But back then, that's not a young man. That was middle-aged back then. So he's a middle-aged man grappling with what life is, what afterlife is, grappling with, is there a box top? And the book opens in the year 1300 with this central character, this 35-year-old man, saying this. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. We know what that's like. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. 
no box top. In it, he is describing the power of looking at the story being described in these pages. And when I start looking at scripture, not just for individual doctrinal statements with which I might agree or use as arguments, but when I start seeing scripture as this larger story, it invites me to something. It invites me to embrace a number of realities. Let me give you three, all related to this issue of why the alarm rings and why you and I are breathing and our hearts are beating. Here's reality number one that starts to take shape when I began to, to embrace the larger story of scripture and it's this, it has to do with significance. I start realizing that significance is not a matter of being the star of my story, but instead significance is a matter of understanding that I have a supporting role. Significance comes not from being the star, but from having a supporting role. And that's just, that's counterintuitive. That's opposite of what many of us think. You know, in our Facebook crazed age where everybody's wanting fans and friends and posts. I, I got on Facebook finally last year. I, I'm an early adopter. I wanted uh, to get on board before it got too popular. So last year I finally did it. Actually, I know it was way too late. But my, and I'm more of a private person, so it's just never something that's been attractive to me. But my boy said, Dad, you gotta, you, you gotta get on Facebook, especially as you're traveling so people can keep up and you know, do a book page and you know, yada yada. So finally I said, okay. So I did the Facebook page and all of a sudden I started getting friends. Um, it was wonderful. But I didn't do anything else with it. About a month later, they said, Have you, Dad, you've got to do a post. I said, what if I don't want to do a post? They said, well, the purpose of having Facebook is to do posts. So I said, all right. So I, I told a story about fishing with my son. My youngest son was on the 20th anniversary of my, my dad passing away. And it was just a powerful time for us. And I thought it might be encouragement to other people. And so I, I posted it. A couple of three days later, one of the boys said, well, did you get any likes? You know, because evidently that's the purpose of posting is to get likes. And I said, I don't know. So I, I checked. And I thought, you know, several hundred people out there, a few people probably would have been encouraged and impacted by my post. I checked and I had three likes. I have three sons. <laughs> Andrew, Joel, and Stephen were the three who liked my post. So I appreciated it, but I uh, thought, gosh, I don't know about this. And, but, but a month later, they said, you need to post again. I said, okay. So I posted something else that I thought would be helpful. And I got three likes, <laughs> Andrew, Joel, and Stephen. I said, okay, uh, there was something a little painful there. And I uh, told them, and they said, check your security settings. I checked my security settings. And I had set it up to where three people could see my posts. Andrew, Joel, and Stephen. So I fixed it. Now you can friend me and you'll see the post. But uh, I hate to admit the, the wince that went deep, especially with that second one. Now that I start having expectations, are you kidding me? Only three people like this? Why don't people more people like me? And, you know why that is? Is because we all have got this, uh, this notion that I'm going to gain significance by you liking me. Katie Cork, addressing the University of Wisconsin, graduating class in May, she said this, we spend so much time these days looking for external validation. 
with our carefully crafted Instagrams, clever postings, perfect pictures, counting our likes, favorites, followers, and friends, that it's easy to avoid the big question, who am I? Who am I? What, what makes me significant? Jim Carrey, I don't know if you're aware of him, he's a theologian, uh, lives out in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> he said this in an interview one time, he said, I wish more people could get rich and be famous and do everything they wanted to do so that they would realize that that's not the answer. John the Baptist got it right. In John chapter three, verse 30, he says this about Jesus. He said, he, meaning Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Do you know how Jesus described John the Baptist? He said, John the Baptist is the greatest human alive. You think there's any relationship between John the Baptist saying, I've got a supporting role here. And instead of leading it down, him down a path of insignificance, it led him to a path of great significance. And when I began to engage in scripture and the larger story it beckons me to, I, I come to that first realization that my significance is found in me discovering my supporting role, not being the star. But there's a second realization, has to do with my purpose. And when I start engaging with the larger story of scripture, start realizing that Purpose is to be discovered, not devised. Just think about that for a minute. You and I are taught in our culture, devise your own purpose. Come up with your purpose. You know what? That's true for a corporation, for a business, for a company. Simon Sinek, start with why. I mean, you know, come up with your company's purpose, absolutely. You know why you're coming up with your company's purpose or your new, your new business? Because you're the creator. And creators come up with a purpose. Creation, you don't create a business and say, okay, why? What's your purpose? And the business answers the question. You tell the business that. But somehow we mix that up when it comes to us as human beings. We think we're to devise our own purpose. And that comes from this notion that we're, all we are are accidents, cosmic accidents, cosmic evolutionary afterthoughts little protoplasmic blobs that have gained shape over billions of years. If that's true, then that's really all we can do is come up with our own purpose because there's no other option. In fact, that's what Camus, the French existential, existentialist said. He said, if, and he believed we're accidents. And he says, if you're truly an accident, which you are, you've got two options. Number one, you need to authenticate your own existence. In other words, you come up with a reason that you're breathing. The only other option, he says, is suicide. And so he says, authenticate your existence, devise your purpose. But he says, I'll warn you, you'll be like the mythological Greek character Sisyphus, who was condemned to a life of rolling a big giant boulder up a hill, up a mountain, then he moves aside only for it to come back down, and he does it again. He says, that's what you'll be doing. You'll come up with a purpose saying, this is going to give me purpose and fulfillment. You get to the top, and it just rolls back down. It's pretty depressing. But then you come to this story, and at the beginning of this story are five words. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, 
God created. You might be the creator of your company, but you're not the creator of you. And when something is created, the purpose lies in the mind of the creator. And when my alarm rings, what's going to give me purpose is not devising my own purpose, but discovering why I'm made. And when you're seeing people doing what they're wired to do, you say, that's why he was born. That's why she, she's alive. She's just, she's, she's fulfilling her purpose. Psalm 16, verse 11. I figured out the path of life. Is that what he says? No. God, you make known to me the path of life. And that life, by the way, it's not just heart-beating life. It's what I refer to. It's, I wrote the book about life with a capital L. You make known to me this path of life. That's the beauty and the fulfillment of me as a human being. You fill me as a result with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. When I start realizing that significance is not a matter of stardom, but of being, having a supporting role, purpose is not devised, it's, it's, it's simply discovered over the course of my journey. But there's a third realization that happens when I begin to engage with this larger story in scripture, and it's this, meaning comes not just from propositions, but also plot. Scripture is a bunch of propositions, yes, but it is not only that. Those propositions have a larger, a larger context, and the context is a larger story, a larger plot. Two, two years ago at Thanksgiving, my youngest son Stephen and I did something that we had talked about for several years. It was a snow day, gonna be, a, it was forecast as a blizzard. This wasn't in central Florida, just so you know. And, uh, it was the day before Thanksgiving, so everything's kind of shutting down anyway. And it was his last year at home. I knew it. He knew it. And uh, we had joked about it several times, but I could never find the, that amount of time, nor could he, to do what we were thinking about doing. We finally decided tomorrow's going to be the day, Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We got up early, ate breakfast, and then at 7 a.m., we started watching The Lord of the Rings trilogy. All three episodes, extended version. All day. We finished about 11 that night. It was awesome. I was bleary-eyed and sick of popcorn, but it was fantastic. And right at the end of, of the, th the third, the return of the king. And, you know, we've journeyed together, my, my sons and I, through this. They each had to read the books before they could watch the movie. And with Stephen, I, he was so young, I actually had to read it to him. And so this has been part of it, but I saw something that I'd never really grappled with before at the end, because at the end, you know, there's this great battle. Some of you are saying, don't tell me the end. I don't want to know. You know what? It has been out a long time. You should have seen it, all right? So at the, at the end, there's this great battle of Middle Earth, and you've got wharves, dwarves and elves and, and men uh, and, and these four little hobbits rescuing Middle Earth from evil, to the point that the, all the, 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 the men leaders and the dwarf leaders and the elf leaders kneel down to pay homage to these four little hobbits. 
And after that, they head back to Hobbiton. And this scene that I'm talking about, they just, I lost it. Because they're sitting in their good old tavern, their pub, the Green Dragon. It's been a year, just a little over a year since they were summoned on this adventure. And there they're sitting in the Green Dragon and it's just as busy as it ever is. It's the same, same drink in front of them, the same food, the same jokes being laughed about, the same songs, the same friends. Everything's the same, but it's actually all different because they're different. And you can tell by looking at them. And the reason they're different is because they get the larger story. And they get their role in it. See, this past year, they had encountered beauty that before had been unimaginable. They had encountered horror that was unspeakable. They had experienced triumph that was indescribable. They, they had found courage that they didn't know existed within them and abilities. And so here they are now back, the same hobbits, but very different because they get the larger story while everyone else around them is unaware. And let me tell you something. That's what happens when the gospel gets a hold of a person. We go to the same job, we play in the same softball league, we go to the same restaurants, but we're different because we get the larger story. If we realize this is not just some religious propositions, these are truth statements, but they're all in the context of a larger plot, a larger story. A couple of years ago in the Super Bowl, there was a commercial by Apple in fact, somebody who works for Apple came up to me between the services. I wasn't in trouble, just so you know, he, he liked it. But he's, uh, th th this commercial quoted Walt Whitman. It was also a poem that was popularized in the Dead Poet Society years ago. It's a poem by Walt Whitman, the American poet, in his collection called Leaves of Grass. And this particular poem is about, oh me, oh life. And here's what it says. It's asking the question, you know, what, what good is it? To, why am I here, basically? Answer, that you are here, that life exists, and identity, and here we go, that the powerful play goes on and you will contribute a verse. And here's the, the, the punchline in the Apple commercial, and it was also in Dead Poet Society. Here's this poet saying, the powerful play goes on and you will contribute a verse, and then here's what they say. What will your verse be? I love that. It's a great question. But I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear me very clearly. That is not the most important question. That's the secondary question. It's not the primary question. What will your verse be is the secondary question. You know what the primary question is? What's the play? What is the play that you've got a verse in? It's, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who are, who are opening up our hearts to the Creator's owner's manual that invites us back into a story, 
we can start getting the play, getting the larger story that can change what we do every day and how we do it. You said, so what's the larger story? I'm gonna make a statement, and like Joel was mentioning last week about the authority of, of scripture, we've heard it so often, if you've been in the church for a while, you tend to dismiss it. I'm gonna use a phrase that if you've been in the church, you've heard it over and over. So many times we don't pay attention to it, it's a cliche. The phrase is the glory of God, and I'm gonna put it in the context of a sentence. Here we go. The larger story is the glory of God. That is the play. And then the question is, what will your verse be? And your, your significance comes with you discovering this, your supporting role in this great story. Your purpose is not devised, it's discovered. He's wired you for that. And our meaning doesn't just come from learning propositions. And so often, and discipleship and, and even apologetics, we learn individual verses, all very important, we need to. But guys, learn it in the context of the overall plot. Then they come alive with meaning and significance and purpose. People say, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Well, it depends on the week, actually the day, actually the hour. But I'll tell you one verse that's always front and center. Habakkuk, chapter two, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Look at that for a minute and let me ask you a question. How completely do the waters cover the sea? Just take a stab. 50%, 75%, 100%. 100%, of course. It is a beautiful metaphor. What this, this is, verse is saying, it's not just some little proposition. It's describing the grand plot of why the electrical impulses in my chest and yours are combining in a series of heartbeats over the course of a lifetime. Everything that you and I encounter is all tied in to this plot that one day, once again, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth so completely as the waters cover the sea. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of restoration. It's a story that began back in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, before the fall, before the rebellion. The glory of the Lord covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. There was nothing in God's creation that didn't glorify him. But then the rebellion happened. It's a rebellion that you and I have PhDs in. We know it. We say, God, I don't need you to be really fully alive. I don't need you, your glory to live. In fact, you start seeing this larger story of the glory of God, you start seeing the glory of God in scripture in places that you've seen it over and over and never paid attention to because we take it for granted. Let me give you an example. When you came to Christ, and if you haven't, this, and you're engaging with the gospel, you'll come to this verse. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned, and you know the great tragedy of our sin, our rebellion? It's falling short of what? 
the glory of God. People think, well, that's, it means it's, I'm missing a standard. Yes, but it means far more than that. My sin, the great tragedy of my sin is I'm falling short of experiencing and exalting the glory of, the glory of God. I'm missing it. Romans 1 puts it in a different way, uh, but similar. Romans 1, verse 20, 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And you know, the epitome of my foolishness is when I exchange the glory of the immortal God for idols in my life. What is the glory of God? The Hebrew word is kabod. It means weight, heaviness. Now track with me for a minute. A person's glory is what's notable about them. God's glory is what's notable about them, which is everything, to infinite degrees. God's glory is his weight, it's his heaven, it's the substance of who he is in his, his self-existence that's distinct from anything else in the universe. His ultimate significance, his sufficiency for all creation. So let me make up a word, and the reason I can do that is because I have the microphone, all right? You've already learned that's a, something that I, a prerogative that I exercise. So here's a, a word I'm going to make up. And this isn't fully encompassing the glory of God, but it gets, gives you and me a starting place. The glory of God is his enoughness. His beautiful and praiseworthy enoughness. Everything God does is for his glory. That's not an ego statement. God doesn't have an ego. He does all of creation to display his enoughness, that he is sufficient to create, he's sufficient to sustain. And, and everything in creation is to exalt his enoughness. And there's something very unique about us as Imago Dei, we're to exalt his enoughness, to, to just broadcast it and make it famous and, and reflect it, but we're also to experience it and to enjoy it. That's why the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's at the core of who we are. But there was that problem. We rebelled and we said, we don't need your glory to live. God had a choice to make at that moment. I'm gonna destroy my creation and start over. But he elected to do something different. He said, I will glorify myself by redeeming creation. You see, before the fall, the glory of the Lord covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. There was nothing in creation that didn't glorify him. The rift occurred through the rebellion. The canopy, there was a rip in the canopy of God's glory. And he says, I'm gonna glorify myself by restoring it. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14 is a description of what's to come. It's the new heaven and the new earth where the glory of the Lord will once again cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the beautiful part about redemption and restoration is that you and I will experience that fully. Right now, there's still gaps in the glory on this planet. So he says, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to redeem it by inhabiting the pages of the story myself. What was preeminent about him coming, about Jesus in the incarnation? What's a preeminent way that he's described? John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his what? 
his glory. What was so distinct about Jesus, fully God, fully human, is that he embodied the glory of God unlike any human being had since Adam before the fall and Eve before the fall. Uh, it's very, very similar to me saying before with you, he, Jesus was more alive as a human being. He was perfectly alive, unlike any other human being since Adam and Eve before the fall. He displayed the glory of God. Hebrews talks about Jesus being the radiance of God's glory, but also describes his purpose. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory... It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. He's describing Jesus as the author of our salvation, and it says, you know what his purpose was? It was not to come start a religion. It was to bring many sons and daughters back to why they were made back to glory. In fact, in the high priestly prayers, he was praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, the night before he gave his life. He said this, John 17, verse 22. He says, Father, the mission is being accomplished. I've given them the glory you gave me. I'm giving them back to them. Do you know what happens when a person comes to Christ? Do you know what happened when you came to know Jesus? And if you haven't yet, what, what's waiting on you is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. I love this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He gives us the box top. He takes off the filters and all of a sudden you and I are like those hobbits sitting in the same context and circumstances they were in before, but they see something differently. They have received the light to be able to see the glory of God in every aspect of their lives. They're given the box top. You didn't think I was going to give that back to you, did you? People have asked me, okay, so what does this have to do with that thing you called life with a capital L? Everything. Irenaeus, the early church father, I think said it best when he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. When we're firing on all cylinders as a human being, God's glorified because what we're doing in that moment is we're experiencing his beautiful and praiseworthy enoughness and we're exalting it. We're reflecting it to others. We're fulfilling that calling. God's been pursuing you your whole life. Me too. And he describes his pursuit in this way. Isaiah chapter 43. He says, I'll say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. And this is what God says through Northland, big church through Northland, distributed churches, is through his people expressing this message. He says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He says, I'm after you. Not to turn you into some religious automaton, after you to start the dance as a human being in the way that you're designed to. 
Now that verse we read earlier, read it again in context. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, start with verse 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. So we don't see. We don't, we, we don't see. Those other, other hobbits in the tavern just didn't. They, they were totally unaware of the bigger story. Until I, that light of the, the knowledge of the glory of God shines in my heart, I don't see it either. But then I, I'm, I'm given the ability through, to. The question is whether I will. Whether I will engage in scripture as it's plot, not just proposition. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I'm, I'm freed up to live as a human being, and here we go, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. What does spiritual growth look like? What does it mean to grow in Christ? It means I become more and more fully human. With, and the, the, what, what determines that humanity, that full humanity, is I'm living my life with ever-increasing glory. It's changing the way that I'm doing the dishes, doing my taxes, watching football games, grieving at a funeral, laughing at a joke, eating at a party, playing golf, being alone, being in community, being with friends. Everything is related to me being involved in this agenda of restoration that God has. The series we're calling it Who I Am. You want to know who you are? You are a very key player in the great play of the restoration of the glory of God on this planet through the way you're wired, through your vocational calling, your spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or do the dishes, or laugh, or cry, or do your vocation, or your education. Whatever you do, come back to why you were made and do it all for the glory of God. Several years ago, I was in Peru speaking at a pastor's conference. I was, had a, another friend with me and a treat they gave us uh, one afternoon when there were no sessions was we, they were gonna, we, they drove us out to this wilderness area and we're gonna, because they found out we loved to hike. They said, we've got a guide who's gonna take you on a hike in the Peruvian wilderness. I said, I'm all over that. After a couple of hours, I started noticing that the guide, and this was not on any trails, this truly was in the bush. After a couple of hours, I noticed the guide starting to act a little funny. Finally, he said a four-letter word that I really was not interested in hearing a guide say, and the four-letter word was lost. <laughs> Guides don't get lost. I didn't have a compass. I didn't have any. I didn't have a compass. I didn't have any of my hiking stuff. We didn't even know we were going to do it. So then we're wandering around. And I do a lot of wilderness stuff. One of the things that happens when somebody gets lost, their heart rate goes up, you start speeding up, and this guy was almost jogging. He was beginning to panic. Here, here they'd given him these two gringos from America. The guy's speaking at the conference the next day, and, and, and he's gotten us lost. And finally, it was getting dark, and I realized, you know what? We're going to be in trouble. So I told John, my friend, I said, stay here with the guide. 
And I looked around, I found the tallest tree I could. And again, these are all trees that are jammed together. It's not wide open. It, it, the reason we were lost is you couldn't see more than you know, 30 yards in front because of the, uh, the underbrush. So I climbed up this tree, dangled in the top, and got a perspective. And we became unlost at that moment because I saw where to go. I'm going to ask our worship team to come out right now, and I want to give you an opportunity to get unlost. I want to give you an opportunity to climb up in the top of a tree. It could be that you arrived here or you're watching online and you're in the middle of the road of your life and you've awoken in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Well, it's time to climb a tree. And every rung of the ladder are the pages of the Word of God, not as a doctrinal rule, not as a doctrinal handbook, not as a moral rule book. Is there doctrine and are there life-giving rules? Of course. But there's not just propositions, there's plot. And that plot is that you have been summoned as a daughter, as a son, and no matter how long you've lived or how short you've lived, he says, give me your heart. Give me that pen. Give it back to me. Become pliable and let me write the story of your life. And I want you to cooperate by submitting to me the ink of your journey. I've made you for my glory. You know why you're so good with numbers? You know why you're so good with people? You know why you're so good with paints on canvas or as an athlete? He says, I made you that way. For you to experience my enoughness and to exalt my enoughness in the way you do your life. And I doubt there's a one of us this past week who hasn't exchanged the glory of the living God for lesser things. Confess that to him and say, God, you've got my heart back. And I'll come back up in a minute and give you one other thing to do. But right now, say, God, take the pen and I submit. You've got my heart.